grateful to be here this morning. Greetings from Virginia. My wife could not be here. Our, our oldest son is getting married on Friday, Benjamin is, and so she felt um, that she could not arrive because she felt like she had too much to do, and she actually asked me, was I going to continue to come to the men's retreat? And I said, well, sure, I'm just the father of the groom. I really don't have that much responsibility, um, and I'm sure I can get back to Virginia by Friday. Um, so, but she does send her greetings. I, I will tell you that um, I love coming. I love seeing your faces, uh, even if they're masked. I love being here, seeing friends. And there's um, a bit of coming back to an old church and seeing friends that, I mean, some of our friends who we've, we've seen throughout the years that we've been absent, we vacation with them, that we have prayed with them, we have loved them. And it's, it's a foretaste of heaven in a lot of ways to go back to a place. And I can't wait when I get to be in heaven with all the people that have, who have loved Jesus, who've been in my life and have encouraged me. So, um, my dad was a firefighter, and I remember as a small child that I would actually uh, love to get into his boots when I was like five or six years old. And I remember those boots were just so big, and I would kind of fumble around, but it was a lot of fun. I sort of feel like that this morning uh, as I'm sitting you know, in the pulpit for Bill Vogler, who is uh, a friend. Uh, he's a mentor. He's a father in the faith, and, and I love him and Karen. Um, we, we laugh a lot, and we, I, I love him. Uh, and so you're blessed to have him. Um, just keep that in mind. Um, uh, let, let me also let you know that the bulletin is wrong. I'm not going to be preaching on Exodus 31 and 32. I'm actually preaching on Isaiah 31 and 32. So we've come today to worship and hear the word of God. So as you're turning uh, to Isaiah chapter 31 and 32, uh, would you please pray with me and for me? Father in heaven, you have given us this day to worship you. And Father, you have revealed to us your will and your word. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would run to it and we would listen. And I pray, Lord, that you would grow our trust in you. Father, we are weary. And there are many of us who are living in fear and doubt. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us within your word what it means to follow after you, to run after you. So, Father, help us. Save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you some background. We're going to do things a little bit differently, uh, only because I need, it's a large passage. I know from 31 and 32, I'm actually violating rules that Bill probably has set, you know, in terms of only going through maybe one chapter or one um, section of scripture. But let me set the stage for you. So in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet who comes, and the prophet is, is called a mouthpiece of God. They're speaking for God. And, and Isaiah comes at a specific time in the life of the southern tribes of Judah. And this time is a, a time of great upheaval and, and difficulty for the people of, uh, of Judah because what's happened is the Assyrian army is now bearing down upon them. So the Assyrian army is now coming upon uh, Judah. The Assyrians have now taken the northern tribes of Israel. At this time, the, the tribes of Israel are split between the southern tribes of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel. But at this point, Assyria has come, and they have laid waste to the northern tribes. They've taken them into exile, and now Sennacherib, their, um, their king, King Sennacherib is now barreling down upon Jerusalem, or actually barreling up to Jerusalem, because we know that Jerusalem is a mountain kingdom. And he is laying waste to all that he sees, and he is um, occupying the fortified cities. And, and King Hezekiah, at this point, is now within the city of Jerusalem. 
And, and the people around are worried. They're fearful about what is going on because Assyria is coming and they're concerned what's going to happen to us. Will we become just like the Israelites um, who have now been taken into exile? And they're concerned. And so what they, do they do? In the midst of fear, they begin to rely upon themselves. And so what they do, and again, I'm trying to set the stage for Isaiah chapter 31 and 32, is what they do is they say, I know, we, we need an alliance. We need an alliance. So let's go down to Egypt and see if the Egyptians, we can form an alliance with them. It's like they're playing the game Survivor, right? You know, let's form an alliance with the Egyptians. Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, and again, if we were in Exodus today, you'll know that the um, e- Egyptians are not the friends of the people of God. I mean, the Egyptians are actually the people who enslave the people of God. They are the people who destroy babies in the womb in Exodus, at the very beginning of Exodus. We know that the people of God are now relying upon um, Egypt. And, and not only have they relied upon Egypt, they're thinking, well, you know, maybe we can, um, and this happens a little bit later, maybe we can pay them off. Maybe we can pay off the Assyrians. So what they do is they go, King Hezekiah strips the temple of all the gold and silver uh, that Solomon built the temple. And he says, let's go pay off the Assyrians. So he pays off the Assyrians, but you know what the Assyrians do? They say, thank you very much, but we're still going to destroy you. And so what we find in the midst of Isaiah chapter 31 and 32, that the people of God are fearful, they're worried, they're overwhelmed, their leadership is not leading, you know, the, the priests are not you know, prophesying what they need to, there's no trust in the Lord, but rather there's trust in other things. So when we come to this part of scripture, we can think about it in this way, when we think about Assyria in this way, um, or when, when the fearful parts of, of Assyria come, we can think of Egypt in this way at the very beginning of the section. Egypt then is a cipher for anything that I think I need outside the promises of God. And that's why Judah was wrong to go down to Egypt for help. God has declared his commitment to them. Their biblical creed was some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of a Lord, the Lord our God. But now going down to Egypt for the help God has already promised them, they were going back to the bondage he had saved them from in the first place. What happens in the midst of distress, turmoil, conflict, friction, whatever you say, what happens is it reveals your functional faith, what you truly trust in and believe in. And unfortunately, there are many of us, and and I've seen many Christians do this in the midst of their own crisis of faith, is that in the midst of the crisis of faith, they will run back to the things that actually enslaved them, thinking that the, the bondage and enslavement of those things will actually bring peace to their souls. And so let me give you an example of that. I've seen Christian men who have been sober for 10 years hit a crisis of faith and they will run back to alcohol because they're trying to numb the pain and they think that in some way that they can actually um, find relief through some sort of addiction or some sort of thing that was holding them in bondage. I think about you know, people who are just overwhelmed with life and with finances. And, and we live in Virginia uh, and just recently, um, we have allowed um, sports betting to come into Virginia. I don't know if you guys have that in Kansas. I don't think you do. I hope you don't. 
Um, but so here's what's going on right now. Like FanDuels and DraftKings and all these other places are inundating their airwaves and the radios, and they're saying to people, um, you know, please come bet with us, bet with us. And at the very end, and this is, I think this is revealing, at the very end of all the service announcements, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the state that I live in, has said, you have to put this service announcement and say, but if you have a problem with gambling, please seek help. That's insanity. That the very, you know, the, the very you know, thing that's enslaving people then has to say, they're not really saying, if you have help, go, go find help. They're saying, give us all of your money. Give us all of your money. We want that. Because people are pursuing this little hit of dopamine in their mind. So they're relying upon Egypt. They're relying upon other things. They're relying upon anything except the Lord God Almighty. And they're living in fear. And in the midst of that, I think that that is an appropriate place um, for the church right now because there are many of us living in fear. We're living in fear of COVID. We're living in fear of you know, the, the turmoil that we're living in. And Isaiah brings us this message in Isaiah chapter 31 and 32. And we have two, there's two points here today. He brings us the grace of confrontation and he gives us also... Um, the grace of provision. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through Isaiah 31, and I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to speak to it with regarding it. The first point is this. It's the grace of confrontation. That's what a prophet does to the people of God who are wayward, who are pursuing other things, pursuing Egypt. So hear the word, chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel." For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, will shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Let me stop there. What we see in the very first section is Isaiah is coming to a people and he's saying, what are you scared of? Because the power of God is greater than the Assyrian army. That the help and the provision and the covenant promises of God are far greater than what comes against you. And you have nothing to fear in Egypt or nothing to fear in Assyria. In Egypt, they won't help you. 
And, it, and there's actually sort of this idea too that Egypt had all these chariots and horses, but Egypt, I don't know if you know this, is a desert land and it was a flat land. And, and really the prophet is saying, you know, those chariots don't help you in the mountains and in the hill country. They're going to get bogged down and, and don't trust in them. And we see the power of God there, and it's described like this for us in in verse 4. It says, as a lion or young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him. Now, that band of shepherds is the idea that um, Assyria, but also the the Egyptians are coming out, but God is sort of hovering over his prey. Essentially, he's saying the prey, he's, he's basically saying, I have ownership over Jerusalem. I have ownership over you. And I will not allow anything to take away what is mine. I mean, that's sort of this image of Aslan, right? This image that we have that C.S. Lewis gives us of this powerful lion over us, protecting us. And like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. And what Isaiah is doing is Isaiah is bringing about confrontation. And we need that in our lives. And I call it the grace of confrontation. And grace we know is unmerited favor. We need confrontation in our lives when we are wayward and when we are trusting in false things. Things that will actually enslave us. It's it's amazing to me that what you worship apart from God, will enslave you to it. If you worship money, you will be enslaved to it. If you worship power, you will be trapped in it or the pursuit of it. And so Isaiah comes to the people of God in in chapter 31, verse 6, and we see this. If you're looking at this, he says, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted. Turn to him. This is the idea that we have of the prodigal son in the gospel of Luke. When the prodigal is out and he has spent his fortune and he understands that he has nothing left and he goes, but my father, but my father, his servants eat better than I do because I'm eating with the pigs So I'm going to turn to my father and I'm going to go to him. And there's this idea that the grace of confrontation says to us, it says we are called to turn to the Lord, not to these false idols, not to these things that are going to lead us astray and not certainly to these things that will consume you, but we are called to turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. Now, that little phrase there at the end of chapter, or verse six, says, O children of Israel, because, and that is such a sweet place because we know, I mean, if you're parents, you know that your children revolt against your leadership on a regular basis, right? And one of the difficulties in being a child is that you become concerned, and I remember this as a young child thinking that that I could do something that would place me out of favor and outside the loving kindness of my mom and and father. I remember disobeying at different times and thinking that I cannot be forgiven or loved because of the depths of my revolting or rebellion against their love. And, And what happens is because of shame, the shame of our sin and the fear that we have, rather than running to our mother and father in the midst of difficulty and strife and turmoil, we, like Adam and Eve, hide in the garden of our own sin and misery. And what 
the Lord God of heaven says to you rebellious, revolting people, turn to me, O children of God. Because even in the midst of your rebellion, you're still a child of God. And that's the beauty here. And he says there's this, this idea that he wants to restore our fellowship. He wants to wrap us in his arms. One of the beauties of, of being a parent is that we are able to bestow forgiveness upon our children so that they know that they are loved even in the midst of their own rebellion. And it's even sweeter when the children know that they have wronged us or been unkind to us. There's something, as a parent, when your child has wronged you and they come to you and say, please forgive me, and it's unsolicited. (laughs) But you know what the problem is? That doesn't happen all the time. We almost need to be a prophet in the lives of our children to urge and to encourage and to direct their steps back into covenant faithfulness, back into reconciled relationship with us. Because at this point, at this point, the people of Judah are not in a good place with God. So the the grace of confrontation is turned to him And then in verse seven, it says, for in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. All of those things that you think um, give your life meaning and value and all the things that you're pursuing, you will cast them aside because you will recognize that the Lord God of heaven, if I have him, then I've got it all. But I I can have the whole world and if I don't have him and if I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. We see this grace of confrontation working itself out from the prophet because these are people who are um, revolting, willfully revolting. A matter of fact, if if you know the history here, you know that there were four kings that Isaiah actually prophesied through and Uzziah, and then we also have Jotham, and then we have Ahaz, and then we also have Hezekiah. And we know that the third king in that line was a wicked king. And you can read it where he actually came to power, began to worship false gods, and actually began to sacrifice his children, sacrificed his son on a pillar to a foreign god. That's how far the people of God had wandered away. And then Hezekiah comes and the Assyrian army that God is actually allowing to ravage Israel and exile them and come against Judah, he's using that to bring the people of God back to himself. And he's using the prophet to say, and and the prophet, the grace of confrontation, child of God, listen to me. Trust in my promises. Don't trust in these other things, but trust and believe in me. Now, in the midst of the grace of confrontation, not only do we see that people are willfully revolting, but you also see this in chapter 32, verse nine. We're gonna skip it, and we're gonna go back to it, okay? Chapter 32, we're gonna go back to verses one through eight, but in Isaiah 32, verse nine, it says this, and this is not, um, I'll explain this. It says, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. 
Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. And let me stop right there before we get to this next section. So not only do we have willful rebellion against God, but we also have people, and he refers to it as the women of Judah right now, the women of Israel, you have become complacent. And he's not picking on women right here, but he's saying that we are at a place now where the culture, where the women are no longer going to women's Bible studies, that the women are no longer um, being careful about their souls. As a matter of fact, when we think of complacent, another word for, for complacent is the word careless, that they're careless about their souls. And not only are they careless about their own souls, but they're careless about their children's souls. And when you see a society where the women no longer care about their children's souls, you are seeing a devolving culture that is just circling the drain. And he's calling out people who are not maybe thinking they're actively rebelling, but they're passively rebelling because they don't worship the Lord God alone. And he says this, so if he says in, in the first part, in terms of the grace of confrontation, he says, turn, he says in this section, he says, rise up, you women, which is basically saying, you're sitting at ease, you're not doing anything, rise up and care about your souls. Care about eternity. Don't worry about tomorrow, but think about forever. Turn, or he says, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. So in terms of the grace of confrontation, there's one sense he says, turn to me. Turn away from false idols and turn to me. And then second, he says, listen, hear my words for you. I think this is um, significant for us um, because I, I believe that we are called to be in fellowship with other believers and we need people in our lives who confront us with our sin, idolatry, and carelessness of soul. We need that in our lives. And yet, I don't know if you guys know this, but many of us are very hard-headed Anybody hard-headed in here? Some of you are so hard-headed, you won't raise your hand. Because you're like, I won't do it. And the reason I know you're hard-headed is because I'm one of you. <laughs> I don't like it when people tell me I'm wrong. I don't like it when people are, are calling me to, to think more about, or they're, they're calling me that I'm, I'm being careless about my soul, or that I need to be you know, a more gentle husband or a more godly father or a more prayerful pastor. Like, I don't want people to come. You know what I really want? I want affirmation. I want people to like me. I yearn for it. And yet when people come and they come, and I mean this, and we need people in our lives who will bring the grace of confrontation in our lives so that we are nudged back into or course corrected back into fellowship with God and a pursuit of him. We need that. Do you have someone in your life who loves you enough to tell you when you're wrong or sinful or careless? 
And when that person comes to you in love and gentleness and, and you know it, how do you respond to them? Do you respond in humility or do you respond in pride? Because if you respond in pride, very soon you will be alone. Yeah, I need that in my lives. I need people to confront me and then I need to respond in humility. And I will tell you that it is a grace, a wonderful grace in your life when the Lord sends people into your life to lead you in righteousness. And to say, you are being fearful for the wrong things, trust and believe. There's this, um, this idea, um, Jonathan Edwards explained how human beings make contact with reality. He says, we know things at two levels. We grasp things with conceptual knowledge in our heads. We also enter into things with a sense of the heart. It's the difference between reading a recipe for apple pie and actually putting a piece of hot apple pie a la mode into your mouth which is better? <laughs> is it better to taste and delight in the Lord or is it better just to kind of know? And he's, he's saying, I, I want you to know at both levels. I want you to know intellectually and I want you to know in your heart. And I will tell you that coming to worship on Sunday morning, it, what it's doing is renewing covenant faithfulness to the Lord. And we, we remember that, you know, come weary burdened wanderer, come to the feet of Jesus because when you come to the feet of Jesus, he will never cast you away. He will wrap you in his arms and he will love you and he will protect you and he will guide you. And when you go through the fires and when you go through deep waters, he will be with you and you are never alone. And he says, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me, lean upon me, lean hard upon me. Don't lean upon Egypt, lean upon me. It's the grace of confrontation in the midst of our lives. But, but then we also see this idea of the grace of provision. The grace of provision, and we see this in really two, um, the Father's plan working itself out. Um, look at, if, if you will, um, this, uh, chapter 32, verse 1. It says this, it says, the grace of provision, it says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. You know, what, I, what we're seeing there is now, now prophets are doing three things. They're, they're oftentimes prophesying about their immediate situation, they're also prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, and they're also prophesying about the future end of the world. And oftentimes their prophecies are intermixed in the midst of all of that. All three of those are interweaving themselves together. But what we think, or what we, we know here, is that this is um, speaking about Jesus. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Jesus will come, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. And there's an idea about this is about Jesus when he comes the first time, and there's also aspects of this about Jesus coming the second time. 
But the provision of God is that a king will reign, and this king is the progeny of King David, and when he comes, he will reign in righteousness, and he will not only reign in righteousness as, as, the, first, as the Messiah has come in Jesus, but he will actually impart to us, or impute to us, excuse me, I'm not Catholic, he will impute to us his righteousness to us. He will credit it to our account so that we can be made right with God. I mean, that's, that's the substitutionary atonement. That's the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. That Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And if we believe and trust in him, then we are no longer orphans. We are no longer slave orphans, orphan slaves, but rather we are the adopted children of the Most High King. And what the prophets are coming and saying is, why do you want to go back and be an orphan slave when you can be a child of God. But when this king comes, he will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. I mean, isn't that a sweet thing that, you know, in the scriptures we ha- either have justice or injustice. That's what we have going on. And we long for that in our day. We long for it because what we find is that the, the wicked of this world are actually trying to take advantage of the poor. They're trying to take advantage, actually, the wicked of the world are trying to take advantage of anybody they can. The wicked of the world, much like fan duels and draft kings and everything else, they're trying to take advantage of people. With a little disclaimer, if you've got a problem, go seek help. <laughs> I mean, it's similar to like the lottery, right? I, I love a bumper sticker that says, the lottery attacks on people who are bad at math. Did you get that? You know, if you play the lottery, you're just really, really bad at math. So this provision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place. Brothers and sisters, I will say this, that, that when we come and we run to Jesus, I mean, There's such a sense of comfort and love in the midst of the people of God that when you come on Sunday morning and we're singing, and we're singing the gospel to ourselves, we're tasting and realizing that Jesus rules and reigns, and I'm forgiven and loved. There's this idea that when we come to worship and we come in the midst of fellowship, Jesus, when we encourage others, he is a shelter from the storm like streams of water in a dry place. I mean, this is similar to the woman at the well, right? The woman at the well, at the well in the Gospel of John comes and Jesus says, you know, draw for me some water. He says, but I have water and you'll never be thirsty again if you taste my water. And she goes, I'd like to have some of that. I'd like to have some of that. Like the shade of a great rock in a weary land, the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the effect, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. And I I love this because this is me because I run to other things. The heart of the hasty, those who run after other things, will understand and know, which means that through the power of Christ, illuminating my soul, and we'll get to the spirit in a second, there's this idea that we will finally know what to believe and trust in. Our eyes will be open, our tongues, we will no longer be mute because we will praise God, our ears will be able to hear, and and I think verse three in chapter 32 is back to, in verse 9 and 32, where he's saying to women, rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice. But when Jesus comes, we hear and we see and we taste. The fool will 
No more be called noble in verse five, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable for the fool speak folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the cravings of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil, his plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Essentially, when the king comes, he will bring about justice and righteousness in the midst of the people and of the world. That's the grace of provision. The grace of provision is given us in the person and work of Jesus. And I cannot stress this more, and I need it for my own soul, that every day I wake up, I need to trust in Jesus, to parent be a husband, to be a pastor, to be a friend. I need it every day. But he not only gives us the son, but we see in verse 15, um, after he talks about these careless women, people who are careless about their souls, in verse 15 he says, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. What is he talking about there? He's talking about Pentecost from the book of Acts. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now think about this. If you're one of the people of Judah, you recognize this about what's going on, is that you have just um, experienced Pearl Harbor in, your, in, your, in that day. It is December 8th, and you feel like the foreign dictator is now going to come, and what do you trust and believe in? What do you hope in? And you're fearful. And yet what it says is that when the Spirit is poured out upon the people, the effect, the effect of the pouring out of the Spirit and the King reigning and ruling in righteousness is this, it will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. I love talking to young parents who have small children, and, and I, I love hearing their stories because they say, you know, there's something about once we put the kids to bed and we look at each other and we go, you hear that? Nothing. It's quiet and there's peace. But even more so in the midst of fearful, fretful worry and anxiety, you know, there, there's this promise that we will have quietness and trust forever and, and that is a, a picture of what heaven will be like, of trust and quietness and peace forever. But I will tell you that if you are pursuing Jesus and you are praying and asking the Holy Spirit to work in your lives and you are immersing yourselves with, within the, the, the word of God, praying to him, in communion with him, in fellowship with other believers, then you get the opportunity to experience a little bit of that peace and trust for your souls here on earth. For people who are not in the word, people who are not in fellowship, people who are you know, distant, then what they feel like is they feel as if they're alone, and what they've done is they've self-exiled themselves. And that's when we need the grace of confrontation to come. The con conclusion here is this, and it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. There's this idea that, that the Lord God will destroy the unrighteous 
Because when the, when the king is ru- ruling and reigning and the spirit is indwelling in the people of God and there is quietness and trust, in verse 20 it says this, happy are you who sow beside all waters, and this is a funny one because we're not an agrarian society here, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. I never thought I would be happy about the ox and the donkey ranging free. So what is he talking about there? He's saying this, that the provision of the Lord is so great as it flows forth from heaven that you're not worried about where you're going to get your next meal or the wheat harvest or the soybeans or the corn, but rather there's such an abundance. And really what he's talking about here is the abundance of grace and mercy in your lives. There's so much that you don't care that the ox and the donkey is wandering around your field eating your crops because you have an abundance because you know my father's taking care of me, that my father holds me in his hand and he loves me. He loves me. I remember as a young child, I'll finish with this story. I grew up on a farm in in Virginia, Virginia Beach. There's still a lot of farmland there. And I remember... um, uh, I lived next door to my grandparents. My granddaddy was one of my heroes. Now, one of the things that my granddaddy was not was not a believer, and that grieves my soul. But let me use him in a positive example because he was a loving, kind man. And he was my protector. <laughs> and we had some of the meanest geese you've ever seen on this farm. I don't know if any of you have geese. They're terrible animals. But as a young child, they will put their head down and they will pursue you sensing fear. <laughs> and I remember coming out of my house and there's a little bridge that would go across to my grandparents' house. And I would come out of the, and I'm probably like five or six years old, and I would come out and I would look to the left and I'd look to the right to the geese. And if the geese made eye contact with me, they would begin to put their head down and chase me. And I remember at like five or six running as fast as I as I can across the bridge. And I remember my grandfather coming out of the, of the house. And I remember I went to my grandfather and I knew this, if I can only get to him, I will be safe. I will be safe. And I remember this one episode where the geese were chasing me and I got to my grandfather and I hid behind his, his arms and one rogue goose came up and pecked at his leg. And my grandfather in a in a gesture, a gesture of dominance and dominion and of sovereign love over me, grabbed that goose by its neck and wrung its head. He took that goose and we walked and we triumphantly fed it to the hogs. And at that point, my grandfather was a hero. Don't run to the geese. Run to your father in heaven who provides and loves. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would not eschew those who come into our midst and who love us enough to tell us that we're wrong and that we're sinful. And Father, we are delighted that you give us the grace of provision in our lives. Father, you, you pour forth from heaven upon us over and over and over again, and you promise to love us and protect us And Father, I pray, Lord, that the effects of the Holy Spirit and the the trusting of Jesus would be that we would have quietness and peace. Father, that we might walk with you. 
in quietness and trust forever. And Father, we long for the day when we will be with you forever. So Father, make us people who love you and trust upon you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.